Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, a state-of-the-art pediatric emergency room. You will then arrive essentially in a facility that is completely dedicated to the environmental needs of children. Plus, elder abuse and what can be done about it. You can call, there is something called Adult Protective Services. They are there to provide services to older adults. It's important for people to know that they can call them anonymously and make a report if they are concerned about someone they know. And an undergraduate research program looking at PTSD. We felt it was really important that some of the students be veterans themselves to shed light at first-hand perspective on what it's like to experience trauma and what it's like in some cases to deal with PTSD. Our checkup from the neck up and a piece from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we learn how to recognize the signs of elder abuse and what to do about it. Plus, new breakthroughs in PTSD research. But first, paying homage to the maxim, children are not just small adults, What's new in pediatric emergency room care in central New York? Few other events can rival the stress that a parent feels when their child has an emergency that requires immediate medical attention. And no place is more important in that scenario than a well-equipped and highly functioning emergency department. Here to tell us more about this need and some of the changes in the emergency department landscape in central New York is Dr. Richard Cantor, professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine and the medical director of the Pediatric Emergency Department for Upstate's University Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Cantor. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Linda. This, uh, this is an extraordinarily exciting time for emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine in central New York. Um, our pediatric emergency department... Uh, is opening, and it's a brand new facility dedicated to the care of children from birth to age 19. Uh, we are moving to a new physical plant with new design, new structures, and enhanced services. With our move, the adult services on the original uh, first floor will be totally enhanced with 13 extra rooms, providing a better experience for the adult patient in the emergency department in general. So in, in general, what you're describing is kind of a win-win Absolutely. for both, for everything to do with emergency medicine. But let me take you back for a minute, because when I was I just did a little intro, I was talking about how difficult it is for parents at a time when they find they have some kind of an emergent circumstance that they really require medical care. And what, in your experience, what has that been like when you've seen parents kind of rushing their child into an ED? If you put it in perspective, let's, let's look at a visit. Let's look at an emergency department visit for a child. Whatever the reason, whether it be a, a febrile illness, an injury, an odd behavior, or anything that raises the concern of a parent, and they decide that they need medical care at any time, any hour, any day of the year. And they could feasibly call their health care provider and be told to go to the emergency department or independently arrive or go to an urgent care and be sent in for more expertise to our facility. Whatever the situation, 
Think of this. You're taking your most valuable commodity, a child. There's, there's no discussion in that regard. You're coming to a strange facility, physical plant. You're coming to a busy facility that has to deal with any and all emergencies in a region. A child arrives. The sensory input to the child is unfiltered. You can't really control it, so it may be a little frightening for a child, which has nothing to do with the personality of the population. It's just the way of a child's basically interpreting their environment. And they probably, excuse me for interrupting, but they also probably pick up on the anxiety of their parent because obviously that, you know, that is is immediate, that kind of one-to-one connection. Very good point. Excellent point. The entire experience is uncontrolled and threatening. That's a great point. Um, You arrive. You're put in a room, hopefully in a timely manner, to be examined by people you've never met, doctors you've never had an emotional or, or... professional contract with who come in a room and have in about a 20-minute period to not only figure out what might be wrong with your child or anyone for that matter in emergency medicine, but to establish confidence, compassion, and concern. And it's quite a challenge for a parent who is 17 or 37. So we're challenged every day by proving our competence and our compassion, but for the family, it's just an extraordinarily mind-boggling experience at certain points. So you have been very sensitive to those issues, being a medical director for a pediatric emergency department all along, and you've been doing this quite a long time. Yes, I have. So I guess the question is, how has your experience or your department met those needs even before this new change? What have you done to really respond to that kind of um, anxiety, concern, both on the part of the parent and the child? That's a great way to put it. Um, The first thing we had to do, which has nothing to do with architecture, is the Department of Emergency Medicine, under which the PZD is run, has dedicated itself to bringing the best and the brightest emergency doctors to Syracuse. Let's focus on that. There's an active residency program here, and we have expertise in toxicology, hyperbarics, EMS. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of resources the emergency department has, including PEDS emergency medicine. With those cogs in place, you're seeing experts in the field of emergency medicine. 20 to 30 years ago, it was a new field. Now it's an established field. It's drawing the best and brightest medical students, and the residency programs follow in suit. So number one, what have we done? We've staffed it with people who know what they're doing. But that's not enough. When you put a child in that situation, the, the challenge is to round out the entire experience, which involves family care. A parent will come in at 2 in the morning, and you may have a sibling. What are you going to do? Tell them to wait at home, and I'll be back. You bring them in, and you put them in a room. And I've I've been doing this long enough that the medicine is fairly well established. I'm into sort of the feng shui of the experience. I have to provide a comfort zone for the sibling, the concerns of the parent. There may be a grandparent in the room, and the child. So what do we have to do that? We have clearly... Everything from the wallpaper to the video experience, if we can distract them and we can get into that if we have time, yes. to round out the entire experience. And the, the field of pediatric emergency medicine and the alleviation of environmental stress is a subspecialty with expertise in the form of child life specialists, people that we're lucky to have funded through the hospital, whose entire dedication is to improving 
the emotional experience of a parent, child, and family. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatrician and emergency physician, Dr. Richard Cantor. We're talking about the new approach to pediatric emergency department that is currently evolving here in central New York. So now, what has taken place? What's the change? Well, the change is almost immediately apparent. You will sign in in the average, in the general sign-in area of the emergency department like people have been doing for 30 years. You will then be personally escorted to the fourth floor where our new pediatric emergency department is. You'll be escorted by uh, an aide or a tech. You will then arrive essentially in a facility that is completely dedicated to the environmental needs of children. The wallpaper are animal themes, lightly decorated. The floor decorations are soothing colors. We invest. This is a professional architectural area that we know. Number two, we have more rooms. We had 13 downstairs, so to speak. We're now up to 20. So you will probably never, number one, have to be sitting for any extended period in the waiting room. We all know what that's like. Number two, more often you'll be walked right back to your exam room where we will greet you and do the welcoming data. And most importantly, number three, you'll probably never end up in a hallway. It can happen. But none of us like to be in the hallway. We feel exposed, and um, I think everybody understands that. So just the physical movement of you towards the medical care point is completely controlled. We have computers that are on wheels. Everyone's seen them where you get registered. Ours are decorated in Disney animals and mm. cartoon animals. When you have an X-ray and you're lying down on the X-ray table to have a chest X-ray or a leg film or whatever, the ceiling has cartoon characters and soothing music. When you're in the rooms, we have windows. We have, obviously, media entertainment for today's generation. We have private bathrooms in every exam room, which patient dignity demands. So, in essence, um, we've tried to pay attention to what would you want? What would anyone want in their experience? Because it's an uncontrolled, unplanned, often terrifying moment, and there's nothing like feeling comfortable in your physical space and, and feeling comfortable with the competency of the care you get. So in a way, what you've done is soften kind of the threat that is an over uh, an overlying threat. I mean, immediately when you have to go to an emergency department, there's the threat of some illness, problem, disease, accident. But then, then you walk into what could be a sterile, frenetic environment just by virtue of what it is in an emergency department. And instead, what you've done is soften it, create an environment of peace, calm, mm -hmm. and in a sense, dignity for both the parent and the child is what it sounds like to me. These are just subspecialized principles that apply to all emergency patient care. The adults deserve the same sort of attention. Of course. But yeah, I've been hired to take care of kids. Uh, but I can't tell you, if you look at the feedback we've gotten through our review, so to speak, over the last 25 years in generally, the emergency department in general, there are a couple glaring weaknesses. Uh, the general weakness is the wait time, the physical plant, and the stress of the moment. But what's always, always complimented is once you get in the room and you meet the healthcare professionals that Upstate provides, whether it be for the adult services or PEDS, things improve dramatically. Now we're trying to fix the front end. And I think, like I said, both the adult population and the pediatric population win, win, win. It's very, very exciting. So you've been doing this a long time, and I think I just wanted to note um, that I, a little 
bird whispered to me that you've just received a very significant award yourself, Physician of the Year from the New York American College of Emergency Physicians. That's really quite an honor. I think there was no one else to give the award <laughs> sure. to. And they just <laughs> sure. figured, okay, that's it. Sure. But that being said, you have a real perspective in your august career of looking at how this whole thing has evolved over time. How do you see the changes in emergency medicine, specifically to do with children, um, currently, and in terms of how it's evolved over the last, I don't know, 15, 20, maybe even 30 years? Well, first of all, if you look at our region, the demograph is changing. We've got, uh, for example, one of the changes in the last five to seven years for me personally is the development of our refugee population. Everyone here knows that upstate New York is a hub for refugee placement. These are wonderful families who have been rescued from horrible situations, who often have multiple children. Imagine the situation of arriving in a foreign country without language skills or any resources, and then you put on top of that a child's illness, and they don't know where to go and what to do. One of the changes is we use language lines and we have educational processes. The other thing, and the more broad stroke here, besides the demographic, is we are... R-E-D in general, and of course the PEDS eater, we're the safety net for Central New York. And I want to put a plug in for the other emergency departments in the region, say Joe's and Krauss and community. Um, when I first trained, emergency medicine was undefined. It was people just hoping to have a good experience. Now it's a specialty, as I mentioned earlier. But the biggest change is people understand what happens in emergency departments now through the media and other experiences. And we have a higher standard. And I'm looking back, not forward, on my career, and I can tell you that I have great pride in what we do, which is 24-7, 365. We don't screen any patients. We don't check your finances. We have one simple motto, what is best for the patient? It's a clear path and hopefully a rewarding career. Incredibly well said and incredibly important information. And thanks so much for coming in and sharing your, your perspective and all this exciting news because it's it's really something very significant We're for blessed. our region. We're blessed. We really are. My guest has been Dr. Richard Cantor. He's professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine and the medical director of the Pediatric Emergency Department for Upstate's University Hospital. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. next, how to recognize the signs of elder abuse and what to do about it. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Elder abuse represents a significant public health problem. Each year, hundreds of thousands of adults over the age of 60 are abused, neglected, or financially exploited. And this is likely an underestimate because many victims are unable or afraid to disclose or report the violence. 
Here with more on all of this and the ways to recognize and prevent it from happening is Jenny Hicks. She's a project coordinator of the Abuse in Later Life program at Vera House in Syracuse, which is a domestic and sexual violence service agency. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. First, let's talk about what we mean when we use the term elder abuse. What exactly is that? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't really understand how broad that definition is. It includes a variety of things that are causing harm to an older adult. It might be emotional abuse. It might be physical abuse. It might be neglect by a care provider, sexual abuse, and then also... Um, how about financial issues? Financial exploitation is probably the largest one. Really? Yes, absolutely. So give us a feeling for how prevalent this is, because I made some allusion here that hundreds of thousands each year. I mean, what's really going on yeah, from your perspective? Yeah, the study of elder abuse, we're about 30 years behind um, learning information about elder abuse. The domestic and sexual violence movement started in the 60s, so there's a lot of data and information about that. There was actually a recent study in New York State, one of the largest ones in the country, where 4,000 people were interviewed um, by telephone to kind of try to figure out what the prevalence was of this issue. Um, what they found by self-reporting was 14.1% indicated that since they had turned the age of 60 years old that they had been abused in one of those forms. Wow. Um, and I'm going to say that's understated because one of the things they screened out for is they screened out for the issue of dementia. Um, other studies have been done about the issue of older adults with dementia, and the statistics are staggering. They talk about 50% of individuals with dementia oh my. encounter some form of elder abuse. But you're basically saying that even those without dementia can basically experience the same thing. Absolutely. It can happen to anybody, anybody at all. So going, uh, kind of segueing from that, who, who is actually most at risk? Are these people who are either living alone, at home with others, in a facility, I mean, what's the what's well, I, the I, general thumbnail of I that? I think a lot of people believe that, you know, they hear elder abuse and they think of nursing homes because that's what you hear about in the newspaper. But only 5% of older adults live in nursing homes. 95% of older adults live at home, and honestly, that's where the bulk of the abuse is happening. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen in the nursing homes, but the reason you hear about that is typically it's being done by a stranger. Um, there's a lot more eyes and ears. There's a requirement to report when you're in a facility, so you hear about those issues. The people who are vulnerable are the ones who are home, typically alone, um, perhaps a care provider there with them, and very isolated. Um, and again, 95% of older adults are living at home, so most of that abuse is happening there. So help us understand what the warning signs for this? In other words, how would we suspect or know that someone we love or a family member of ours who is an older adult might be experiencing this kind of thing? Yeah. Let, first of all, sure. what are the general kind of things you might see, general yeah. signs? Overall, I'd say any change in behavior you should really kind of key into. Um, somebody who was used to get out a lot and all of a sudden doesn't get out a lot, or somebody who was very calm who is now very jumpy. Um, so what is their behavior? Isolation is probably one of the biggest red flags when you talk about the issue of elder abuse. Um, you mean self-imposed isolation? I would say isolation by the care provider as well. It really goes both ways. Um, the individual might isolate because they're ashamed. They don't want people to know that it's happening. Um, the care provider who might be doing the abuse obviously will isolate because they don't want people to know. 
Um, so those are some of the early red flags is that isolation. Um, other red flags can be pretty broad. So let's go kind of point by point. Sure. You mentioned the kinds of abuse that take place. Mm -hmm. In physical abuse, mm -hmm. what might you see? Yeah, um, certainly in physical abuse, you think about older adults. You, if they're being abused, you might see bruising, cuts, injuries. But not every bruise on an older adult means they're being abused. You know, Of course, I think people about, fall and have all kinds of absolutely. injuries. Absolutely, and my mother, you know, is on blood thinners, so she has bruises that she doesn't know where they come from. You know, just she, there was one time she pulled off a Band-Aid and had bruises where the sticky parts were. So mm -hmm. um, really, the bruising or the injury should tie in with an explanation that doesn't make sense. They say they knocked into a doorknob, but the doorknob doesn't match up, or the caregiver says something happened, and the other individual says something else. Um, How about this idea of um, the caregiver's role here? Maybe, again, this is more of a general statement, mm -hmm. but the caregiver's um, perhaps pro provi or prohibiting you from being alone, you oh, as the observer, absolutely. With, with the individual. Yeah. Um, a care provider, again, wants that person to be isolated. Um, we work with a lot of older adults, and when we talk about, you know, people who are working with older adults, if there's a suspicion of elder abuse, how critical it is to separate those individuals to have a dialogue, because very often that care provider who's abusive wants to fill in all the answers, does not want that person to be alone and have the ab opportunity or ability to disclose what's happening to them. And the interesting thing is right now we're, tr uh, we're kind of focusing on people who maybe don't have... Um, a significant amount of dementia, but then I want to turn to, obviously, that only complicates the problem because they can't necessarily um, clarify or or be their own best witness. Exactly, and quite frankly, in those situations, the care provider is going to say, well, you know mom or you know dad, they're confused. You know, that didn't happen. They're having a lot of issues, so they're trying to deny even when the person might be trying to ask for help. What kinds of things might you see if it was emotional kind of abuse, let's say verbal abuse, that kind of thing? I mean, do you see um, on the part of, first on the part of the individual, the patient, so to speak, do, is might you see some behavior? Withdrawal, mm -hmm. um, sometimes depression, mm -hmm. a lot of self-blame because what we also know is the bulk of the perpetrators are family members. Um, Forty-seven percent of the time, it's your own children. So, you know, they they blame themselves for the behavior of their children. So there's self-blame. There's certainly withdrawal, depression, those types of things. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with elder abuse prevention expert Jenny Hicks. We're talking about elder abuse and how to recognize it and somewhat prevent it, help help prevent it. In terms of sexual abuse. Again, what might you see or, or what might you observe? Yeah. Um, again, behavior might be one of those things. Um, it can be pretty blatant. One bed and there's two people living in that facility. So sometimes it's something like that. But a lot of older adults are very ashamed if something like, like that's going to happen. So they might not disclose. And injuries, they might also not disclose. So perhaps the person never needed a walker or never needed a cane. All of a sudden they need one and they're not really disclosing what happened. Well, injuries take a long time to heal. Bloody, soiled clothes you might see, things like that. How about stuff like neglect? I mean, that seems more obvious. Mm -hmm. But again, if there is a caregiver in the picture, you mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily want to see things like 
you know, um, unsanitary living conditions sure. and that kind of thing. Sometimes that, you think you might just recognize, and some of those things you will. Yeah. What does the home smell like? Is there food in the refrigerator? But what about those more subtle things? What about medication bottles? You know, are they full and they're not being utilized? Um, are pain meds all gone and they, the prescription was filled yesterday? Um, so what's going on with those types of things as well? How about financial exploitation? Because that was what you said could often be a yeah, very significant I think one. in every case we see, they're, they're, if there's not financial exploitation happening currently, the individual is high at risk. Um, once the person is isolated and start layering on, not having access to others, um, having their finances actually taken away from them, financial exploitation just grows and grows. And it doesn't start necessarily large. Um, it might start with somebody going to the grocery store and saying, do you mind if I pick something up for myself, mom? And mom says, no. Then they have the card, so they pick up their whole grocery bill. And then they have the card, so they can withdraw money. Um, so it tends to start small and grow large, and we've seen people lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. So let's talk a little bit about the caregiver and what might you see in the caregiver that might make them more at risk for this kind of behavior. You're saying it's not necessarily a stranger who's been hired. It could be a family member. So mm -hmm. what are the kinds of things? Is it burn? Is it caregiver burnout? Is it the fact that it's such a hard job, maybe resentment, maybe the fact that their relationship with their parent was not great before? 90% mm -hmm. of abuse is happening at the hands of family members, which shocks people. It's 90%, and another six is friends and neighbors. So the vast majority of abuse is happening at the hands of someone you know. Why? Early studies pointed to caregiver stress. Those have been disproven. Really? Um, just, just turn it around a little bit and say, if you're a parent and you're stressed out and you abuse your child, is that okay? Right. No. So it's just not turn a, it's it around. Not a it's not an excuse. Is caregiver stress a factor? It can be a factor. Um, but what we know is, you know, there might be some risk factors. Um, a lot of those, a lot of the perpetrators might have an issue of financial need, um, unemployment, some sort of addiction, whether it's drugs or gambling or alcohol. Um, they might have encountered some sort of abuse in the past themselves, which makes them more likely to abuse others in the future. It's not a one-for-one, one, but it, it, it could be a risk factor as well. Um, so basically what can be done? We're going to talk about prevention. You are involved in a program to do such, that very thing. Tell us what you would recommend? What should people be doing in terms of prevention? One of the biggest thing is building awareness. So thank you for allowing that opportunity. A lot of people don't know what to name it. Um, they, they feel something's going wrong with an older adult. So let's start building awareness on what elder abuse is. You, It's the emotional. It starts there. You start seeing that with someone you care about. What can you do? So recognition. Talk to them. Recognition, absolutely. And the other side of that is once it's recognized, let people know that there's resources available. Um, very often that care provider is trying to isolate the person. So is there a way to get other services in that home, eyes and ears who might be there? If the person or gets even day other programs, services, absolutely. Kind of if you can get services in, then that person becomes less reliant on that person who's abusing them and might be willing to get them out of their home if they know that they can get care somewhere else. So is there a specific way to report elder abuse? this point? There is. Um, unlike child abuse, there's not a mandate to report elder abuse in New York State. It's the only state 
um, that does not have mandated reporting yet of elder abuse. The um, only state. The wow. only state of that does not have mandated reporting for elders who live in the community. Um, if you're in a facility, um, there is some mandate. Um, so what can you do? You can call. There is something called Adult Protective Services. A lot of people don't know what Adult Protective, and if they do, they think it's Child Protective for Adults. So they're afraid to call because they think they're going to swoop in and remove that older adult. Adult Protective doesn't do that. They are there to provide services to older adults, and I would say it's important for people to know that they can call them anonymously and make a report if they are concerned about someone they know. And this exists through the, our county government, right? It sure does. And in addition, there's Vera House, and Vera House is a great resource 24-7. You can call if you have any questions. We actually have an elder advocate who works one-on-one -on -one with individuals to connect them to services and provide what they might need. So this is incredibly hopeful in that we do have something going on in terms of services, but I think your point is very well taken. People must first recognize that A, it exists, and B, to recognize what the signs are in order to take action. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Jenny, thanks so much for coming in. My guest has been Jenny Hicks. She's the project coordinator of the Abuse in Later Life program at Vera House, which is in Syracuse, and it's a domestic and sexual violence service agency. Once again, thanks so much. Thank you so much. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. The biggest losers don't really, or... Forget dieting for weight loss. Think lifestyle change. Well, dear listeners, I was shocked to read some statistics from a new book on dieting by a neuroscientist. She says only about 1 in 1,300 severely obese men and 1 in about 700 such women are able to get to a normal weight in a year, and very few who do will, over five years, keep it off. Why? The brain is totally expert at getting you to eat more calories, even if you have a conscious intention to cut back. And if you do lose, it's expert at returning your weight to where it was, what they call your set point, to keep you from what it thinks is starving when you get below that. And it does this as automatically as it keeps you breathing by doing things like making you feel hungrier and slowing your metabolism to burn fewer calories. Take those people who lost massive weight on the TV show The Biggest Loser. Well, they do get thinner and more fit by the show's end, but over six, six years, they gained 70% of the pounds back because their body's metabolism slowed down, so they were burning 500 fewer calories a day than other people their age and size. Want more proof? You know liposuction, where a doctor inserts a vacuum tool into fat and sucks some of it out of your body? Turns out that if you suck some out of one place, you gain the same amount back someplace else. Tricky brain, huh? Most dieters 
gain even more weight over time than people who never dieted. How do we put these findings together with the data from the National Weight Control Registry, nwcr.ws? That list of some 10,000 people who have lost a lot, at least 30 pounds, an average of 66 pounds, and managed to keep it off for at least a year, average 5.5 years. Doesn't that registry show that people can lose weight and keep it off? Well, yeah, those people have, but those registry scientists have been adding people to that list for over 20 years, and they've only got 10,000 people, a lucky few from the millions and millions who have dieted. And those registry people were not just dieters. They made serious lifestyle changes and sustained them for years. The biggies? Shifting to eating healthy, basically Mediterranean style, and exercising an average hour a day. How do we put these two seemingly contradictory views together? My reading of this research is that we just can't yet. Seems clear dieting alone doesn't work except short term. And remember, the registry people don't end up model thin. The registry women average 145 pounds and the men 198, with a lot of individual variation in how much weight people lost from 30 to 300 pounds. As a psychologist, I'm telling you all this because I want you to be realistic. Clearly, keeping lost weight off is hard, if possible for a few. It requires substantial effort over a long time, and you won't know for sure until you do the hard work yourself to see if you can really do it. And I'm telling you this because being unrealistic is stressful, and a stressed brain can make us overeat. Overall, a good weight control strategy may be to eat healthy and only when we're hungry and don't overdo it. And exercise for the real physical and emotional benefits. Same for your kids. Here, an ounce of prevention is really worth a pound of cure. And make sure Everybody gets enough sleep because a tired brain, you guessed it, makes us gain weight. I'm Dr. Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. in PTSD research. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, the National Comorbidity Survey report found that an estimated prevalence of PTSD among adult Americans is almost 8%, with women twice as likely as men to suffer from PTSD at some point in their lives. Joining me to shed some light on some new research into this troubling problem are Dr. Stephen Glatt. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Behavioral Sciences, Neuroscience, and Physiology at Upstate Medical University, and Ivan Castro. He's a project manager for a program called the Research Education for Undergraduates, and he's also a graduate student in global health. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Ivan, let me uh, start by asking you, what is the Research Education for Undergraduates program? What is this? It's a, it's a training program. Uh, we recruit uh, students every year, and uh, our it's a National Science Foundation funded program. So there's there's multiple are used throughout the country. The one we have here, we focus on trauma studies, and one of the unique uh, features of it is we recruit half of the participants are student veterans, and the other. So the notion, just to, just to interrupt you for a second. So the notion here is that your focus is almost exclusively on trauma. <clears throat> and and therefore, and PTSD is part of that, and therefore, not only in terms of the subject matter that you study, but the students that you also involve as being little as being trained in research are veterans as well. Yes, and it creates a great balance between uh, the veteran students and the traditional students, and just looking at it from both points of views. <clears throat> so these are for undergraduates. What where's this program come out of? You said National Science Foundation, but what are the institutions that are participating? Uh, in ours is uh, Syracuse University, SUNY Upstate, and SUNY Oswego. Uh, so we have great mentors, faculty from all of those schools that come here and they get together, and we train uh, about ten students every summer. So it's a summer program. Yes. So Dr. Glatt, obviously you've been a mentor. That's your role. Tell us about how you got involved and what you do for the program. So I got involved in the very first year. I've been fortunate to be involved with it for five years and see five cohorts. And what Ivan didn't mention is that he was one of our trainees. Mm. And so we're super proud that he's gone on to enroll in graduate school and to be the project manager for the REU. But you said the rate of PTSD is like 8%, which makes it a common disorder. But among military veterans, it can be upwards of 20%. So when we designed this research education unit, yeah, we felt it was really important that some of the students be veterans themselves to shed light at firsthand perspective on what it's like to experience trauma and what it's like in some cases to deal with PTSD. And they share their perspective with their traditional students. Meanwhile, the traditional students who are very high level students, we've had over 140 applications this last year for five slots for wow. traditional students. So it's very competitive. They're the best of the best. And they share some of their perspectives on getting into graduate school research experience with our veteran undergraduates who oftentimes haven't had exposure to research. So in other words, it's really a win-win. Basically, both groups of these students kind of impact the other and in, per, in terms of life experience, but also in terms of maybe academic experience and how to move forward. So Ivan, tell us about the, some of the work that you did, both in your, in your tenure as, this, um, as, as a fellow, as, as a participant in the research uh, looking at PTSD. I know you you did some data mining. You yes. found some Im very interesting information. What is what have you found, and what it, what's your kind of take on this? Um, well, I'm very in interested in uh, developmental and attachment theory. So I looked at uh, just positive family relationships and how they correlate with uh, resilience, which is uh, a big thing. 
uh, when trying to buffer the effects of experiencing that traumatic event. So let me back up for a second. Resilience is something we've been hearing about for probably a decade or more, maybe even longer, as a quality that helps people withstand perhaps traumatic events. And what you're suggesting then, just so I get it clear, is that looking at early childhood experiences within a, a family or with their you know, caregivers uh, impact their ability to develop this quality called resilience. Yes. Uh, so resilience uh, as a dispositional attribute gets uh, fostered with positive relationships early on. So when you say a dispositional attribute, clarify that for me. Is that means it becomes part of their character, <clears throat> part of their temperament? Yes. Uh, it's part of the character, and it's just having self-esteem and self-efficacy, uh, being able to regulate your temperament and being competent at just tasks. And uh, that, that happens just uh, early on. So as a child, if you experience, you know, this, this may be kind of subjective from the child's perspective, but if they're experiencing a positive relationship as they grow up, they will know that they can bounce back from any situation. Or it, not just know that, what you're suggesting is somehow slowly over time, that kind of positive relationship is what enables them to build a sense of self-efficacy, maybe self-worth, yes, and their ability to manage trauma. So did the research that you did, or looking into the data that you looked at, support this notion? Yes. Uh, the data analysis supported uh, the notion, a highly correlated uh, positive family relationships to resilience. So resilience is like a, a mediator. So from family to resilience to lower PTSD symptom scores. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neuropsychologist Dr. Stephen Glatt and student um, Ivan Castro. We're talking about um, his student research into uh, a project into PTSD and other things. So um, I want to turn to you for a second, Dr. Glatt. What do you think the research has shown, and Ivan comment on this as well, in terms of what are the fundamental characteristics of that positive relationship that does foster this notion of resilience? I'm happy to speak. I think resilience is probably, it's been a focus for about 10 years, as you said, maybe even longer as a psychological construct, like something we're trying to define as being optimistic and self-determined we've reached a point where resilience may be almost a target that we want to study in and of itself, not just as a mediator anymore. And so I'm a psychologist and I relate to Ivan's training in psychology as well, thinking about it as a psychological construct. But I'm also a genetic epidemiologist. And by paying attention to the research on PTSD genetics, we're starting to identify risk factors for PTSD, bona fide risk genes for PTSD. And I see that as an opportunity to say, what else are individuals at high risk for PTSD packing in terms of resilience genes that may buffer them from the fact that they're carrying a lot of risk for PTSD, but they don't experience PTSD? So almost irrespective of what their environment or their parent, the parenting style they grew up in, you're suggesting there may be some genetic um, underpinnings mm -hmm. to support this notion of resilience. That's right. So just like 
every psychiatric illness or every psychological trait. It's not nature or nurture. It's both. both and how they work together. I think resilience is probably a combination of something you're born with, but also something you learn from your parents and in your environment. And we're focused on finding the genetic part of that, and Ivan's more focused on finding that environmental fostering part of that. So it dovetails pretty nicely. So you're working on trying to find those markers, mm -hmm. biomarkers or what have you, but getting back to you, Ivan, what are some of the fundamental things that you did find? For example, I would think of things like unconditional love or unconditional acceptance being an important initial uh, parent-child, you know, kind of force, um, and perhaps appropriate boundary setting, those kinds of things. What are the kinds of things you found? Um, yeah, so you're right with that. Uh, just uh, <laughs> a loving relationship always helps, right? Uh, but just uh, as a parent, just being, being supportive of your child and just having more of an authoritative parenting as opposed to authoritarian. So let's clarify. So what's the difference between authoritative and authoritarian? Authoritarian is, uh, hey, you have to do this. Because I say so. Yes. Not authoritative okay. is more like, hey, you have to do this or you can't do that and this is why. You explain to them, you know, the consequences of what could happen. Um, so Almost like you're the, you're the authority and that's got to be clear but you respect enough the child to give them both the rationale or um, the dignity yeah, in a way an explanation, of explaining. Because they, they need that. If they're always constantly being told what to do or what not to do, it's just, that you just, it's just a, a straight order type of thing. And, and it, that therefore they don't learn what? They don't learn to make their own decisions. They don't learn consequences of their own as opposed to just always looking for somebody else. So it makes them kind of uh, not very high on self-esteem. So when they grow up, they're like, okay, I need to do this, and they're just kind of looking for an answer from somebody else because then it was never fostering them to make their own decisions. And if they fail, they always will have someone to back on. on. What's interesting to me is, though, when we talk about military, you, you always think of the military model as one where you just obey orders and you don't question and you maybe don't even ask for the reasons behind something. Do you think that might be why, or a potential contributor to why people who are in the military might experience, PT and this is just coming out of my head, PTSD with having not had maybe more of this opportunity for self-development? Um, what do you think? I, it'll be interesting to look at. So I mean, if, a if, a child, if a child experienced an authoritarian parenting style and then they join the military and it's just it's like a, the same cycle going over they could be more prone to develop PTSD if they experience a trauma but that's just me I, I, no one's done research on We're that but it would be pretty uh, for future studies and again from a genetic point of view there is a genetic contribution to risk taking and to novelty seeking. And these are features that you see among military veterans as well. So it's hard to disentangle what oh. drew someone into the military and put them at a greater risk of exposure to trauma. But the military, just like any, any social cohort, has all types in it. Sure. So uh, basically, a lot of the, your research, though, isn't just limited to military. When we talk about PTSD, I mean, it can, it can be trauma exists you know, ubiquitously yes, right. throughout our world, and it takes many forms. As a matter of fact, um, you were mentioning to me at one point that a certain type of trauma can be more deleterious to a child, even more so than a, perhaps something like a single traumatic event. Yes, yeah, so childhood trauma, 
it's been found that childhood trauma leads to a lot of disorders later on, which is a lot of problems. But just experiencing like a car accident or a natural disaster, one-time event, you can still build resilience if you have those positive uh, family relationships there. But if you, as a child, you experience constant daily trauma from negligence or abuse, uh, malnourishment, it, it, it takes a bigger toll. And then you just kind of like, you know, keep pounding the hammer on and on. And it's just that that's the worst kind of trauma as a child could experience that later on will develop, you know, their high risk for depression, uh, suicide risk, PTSD. All of those kinds of things. So ultimately, it's something that we kind of know intuitively a positive loving relationship would help someone grow up with maybe a more positive approach to the world and maybe more resilience in quotes but it's nice to see that some data actually is being accrued and in your case dr glatt that some biome that's right biology we have to find the biology of resilience we could foster it in everybody yeah, I guess that's that's the key here. So is this program that you're both engaged in looking in the very little bit of time we have left to help develop that for people? I mean, th this kind of research? Long term, we want to understand what pe puts people at risk for PTSD and then how we buffer people from that. Well, I think it's very hopeful, especially with people like Ivan working on it okay. and yourself. Thank you so very much for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Stephen Glad, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Behavioral Sciences, Neuroscience, and Physiology at Upstate Medical University, and Ivan Castro, the Project Manager for Research Education for Undergraduates. I'm Lydia Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Patsy Asuncion gives us a glimpse into the sorrow borne by a caregiver whose beloved no longer can recognize her. Here is emptying. Hole in the bucket, nothing to mend it. Cells die and unknit. Brain gaps deepen slits. Who's that, he asks. What's that, he rasps. Same queries, alas. Response wears mask. Memory pours out. New files don't rout. Recall and doubt. Facts blurred throughout. Who's that, I pry. Sad stares reply. Blank eyes don't lie. Mere shell I spy. Decline just creeps. Drip, drop, he seeps. Lost love, I weep, raw tears, knee-deep. for joining us for HealthLink On Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we explore innovations in urologic surgery, plus endocrine research that holds new promise for clinical care. And, oh, my aching shoulder, what's causing that pain and what can help? 
If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.